Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. We are trusting this year to push deeper and deeper into the miracles that God has for us. And the full title of the sermon series, if you see it there, is actually Miracles, Let Him Be Known. Because God is a God of miracles. From the creation of the earth through our entire history right up today, God is doing miracles. He is a miracle-working God. Now, the dictionary defines miracles as an effect or extraordinary event in the physical world that surpasses all known human or natural powers and is ascribed to a supernatural cause, a manifestation considered to be the work of God. Anything that we cannot do in our own strength that God does for us, that is a miracle. Are you aware of the things you can't do in your own strength? Are you? (laughs) That's where miracles start. When there's something that is required in our life, but we cannot make it happen ourselves, God is setting us up for the opportunity of a miracle. And as I said, miracles are happening today. The testimonies we've heard. And now there's no small testimony. There are no small or great miracles. There might be more dramatic and less dramatic miracles, but they're all great. Because anything we cannot affect by ourselves, and God does, that is a miracle. And the point of all miracles is to make God known. And so tonight we are in week three of our Miracle Sermon series. And... uh, This series actually is based on seven miracles that Jesus does in the book of John, a series of seven miracles. And every one of these miracles is trying to prove to the Jewish people of his time, but to us tonight as well, that he actually is the Messiah, that he is the promised Son of God manifest in in flesh to reveal God to us. The promise of Jesus Christ, all the things Isaiah and the other prophets promised, Jesus is doing, healing the sick, raising the dead, opening blind eyes, turning water into wine, just amazing things. And so tonight is our third miracle that we're covering. In fact, do you know that Jesus is the greatest miracle of all? Just think about that for a minute. He is the Son of God manifest in our midst. You know, he came and made his dwelling among us. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. He rose again in the power of God. And that is what sets us free from sin. That is the redemption that comes. And that is a miracle that God himself will become man to save sinners like you and I. He is The miracle. And so we've already covered the first two miracles. We've spoken about Jesus turning water into wine, taking a mediocre party and making it absolutely amazing. Last week, Pastor Roger led us in discussing the healing of the official son, a man who had such great faith, Jesus had never seen such faith in Israel. Because he just came and said, If you speak, he will be healed. And lo and behold, it happened. And so tonight we're talking about 
the healing of the paralyzed man. And uh, we're going to read from John chapter 5, from verse 1 to verse 15, if you want to follow in your Bibles or on your app, but you can follow along with me as I read from the screens. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in which, in which, oh goodness me, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed, who had been in, no goodness me, something has gone horribly wrong here. <laughs> Let's see if it carries on. I'm so sorry, I'll read it from, from my notes. Something weird has happened to the slides. Um, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which was five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful, you to, lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And so, this is such an amazing story. Jesus comes up to Jerusalem, and very intentionally, the first thing he does is he goes to the pool of Bethesda at the Sheep Gate. There's so much else he could have done, but that is where he very intentionally goes to. Now, the book of Nehemiah explains to us that the reason it's called the Sheep Gate is because that anybody who was, who was bringing a sacrifice to the temple, that is where they would bring the sheep through, the lamb, the sacrificial lamb through to enter the temple. Jesus is the lamb slain for the sin of the world. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus has come to the pool of Bethesda to heal a man who is paralyzed because of his own sin. That's what it tells us. Bethesda means the house of mercy. The house of mercy. Now, if you were able to read along with me, you might have noticed that there's something interesting that happens in this portion of Scripture. We skip from verse 3 to verse 5. <laughs> verse 4 doesn't exist. And that's not an accident or a mistake. Um, in the original King James Version, there was a verse that was put in. And Quinton explained so well this morning that what scholars think, it might have been a note trying to explain what the Pool of Bethesda was exactly. And it's a bit of a myth, actually. And the, and the story that the King James tells us is that an angel would come and stir the water. And when the water was stirred, the first one in the pool would be healed, right? But... 
archaeology um, history has, has progressed to such a point, we have way more uh, copies of, the, of older texts than the King James had access to, than the people who, who, used, uh, who, who translated the King James, and they have access to. And so what we know for certain now is that in the oldest text, that scripture was not in. Somehow it just came in through the legend and the myth of this angel stirring the water. And there are quite a few places in your modern translations where you'll see verses missing. That's what happened. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. No other religion is correcting their original texts. <laughs> <laughs> because Christian texts are so verifiable. Here's a miracle. In the last decade, in the last couple of decades, major atheist universities in America and Europe have been forced to open New Testament study centers because the, the technology and the, and the way they verify the papyrus and the text has been so proven through the New Testament texts that when they try to verify other ancient texts on their authenticity, they use the New Testament text to do that with. Isn't that amazing? And so anybody who wants to tell you that the Bible, the New Testament especially, isn't what it says it is in the time it was written in the t by the people who it says it was written by has no academic understanding anymore. So how's that for a miracle? That Jesus rose from the dead, that is still a matter of faith. But that he existed and that the Bible is what it says, that the New Testament is what it says, you can, can no longer argue. And so this little, this little myth gives us a plausible story for why there are so many invalids lying around waiting to be healed. And again, Bethesda means the house of mercy. But let's think about that myth. <laughs> These are blind, lame, and paralyzed people lying around. And this is their expectation. An angel's going to come and stir the water and then the first one in gets healed. The blind people can't see the pool. <laughs> the lame and paralyzed, how are they going to get there? And what this is telling us is that this is all about man's effort. This is a transactional reality. This is a transactional kind of mercy. And so I don't think this is a godly thing. I don't think this is something we should celebrate. I think this is a man-made thing. There is no proof that the angel ever came and stirred the water. There is no testimony anywhere that says anybody got healed at the pool of Bethesda. But you see, there's this thing that happens when the human heart is desperate. When we get desperate, we will do anything. We will do anything. And you know, in worship songs, we sing desperate, but the real meaning of desperate in English is there is no hope. So when we sing it in worship, I don't mind because I understand what we're saying. But it's not accurate because there is always hope in Jesus. And being desperate is never a state we should actually be in. And what we do when we're desperate is we try and make plans for ourselves. And this is what the pool of Bethesda is representing. Even if that angel came, it was up to your own strength to get in the water. That is not God's mercy. God's mercy is not transactional. Do you know that the word, the word mercy means you get what you don't deserve? Let me rephrase it. You don't get what you do deserve. That's what I'm trying to say. You don't get what you do deserve. What do we deserve? We are sinners. Without Jesus Christ, every one of us is sinners. We deserve wrath and damnation. But mercy is a gift God bestows on us, and we cannot make it happen for ourselves. 
in the distant pre-dawn of, of the universe. You know, Jesus is called the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Now think about that for a minute. And in my head, I have this imagining as I've contemplated that, that before the universe even began, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead got together and they were like, we're going to do this. And God was like, well, there's one problem. And immediately Jesus' hand went up. He said, don't worry, I'll sort that out. I'll do that. That's when God decided to show mercy. That's when he decided to show mercy. Mercy exists because God decided that's how it's going to be. And so when you come to Jesus and you, you make him Lord of your life, mercy is immediately extended to you. And this is something I'm beginning to understand about Christian walk, my Christian walk. There are so many things that belong to us, but we don't take them. We still try and do it in our own strength. Some of us are still trying to get into that water to be the first ones into that water for the blessing or the healing or to put ourselves before. And God's going, it doesn't matter. Here is the mercy. You see, the whole point of Christianity is relationship. And that's why I don't think this is real. Because why would God go, okay, I'm going to show two bits of mercy this year, and only two of you who are strong enough and can make it into that water <laughs> intentionally or by accident <laughs> is going to get healed. That just isn't who God is. He wants to know us. He wants us to know him. And this is the most amazing thing. Remember what I said. The story starts and Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and goes here intentionally. Why? Because mercy himself has come to the house of mercy to show mercy to one man and to set him free forever. And this is so interesting to me. There's a multitude of invalids <laughs> Everybody who's gathered there wants a miracle, wants a healing, is desperate for something, as I've said. And you know what? They absolutely were physically blind, physically lame, physically paralyzed. But what they didn't know is that spiritually and emotionally, they were also blind, lame, and paralyzed. And this is a prophetic picture of you and I in the world before we came to Christ. We didn't even know what our condition was. We knew we needed something, but we didn't even have a clue what that was. And so every attempt to fill up our lives was just false, just ended up in more damage, just ended up in more problems. And this is the crowd that is there. And then the most amazing thing, there is a multitude. And there are stories of Jesus going to places, and whoever came to them sick, he healed. But in this one, there is one man in a multitude. One man in a multitude. Everybody there wants healing, but Jesus walks into this multitude and just heads straight for one man. Now, I've contemplated this, and in counseling sessions, I've spoken with this to some people, and, and this, is, this is what it must have looked like. Sorry. Oh, gosh. Oh, wow. Ooh, really sorry about that. Excuse me, excuse me. <coughs> you. <laughs> now he gets healed. Now it's the same story getting out of there. Just hold that for a minute. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us every single detail. But, but the New Testament, even when it's talking about Jesus, Jesus is human. He's fully man, fully God. 
We need to use our imaginations a little bit. We need to ask the text questions. Actually just stop and think what it must have looked like. Because if it's in the Bible, especially if it's about Jesus, it is highly, highly intentional. There is something we must learn from what is happening. So keep thinking of what I've just done. And one of the suggestions here is that salvation, receiving salvation from Jesus, is extremely personal, extremely specific, extremely particular. Matthew 22, verse 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. See, if you are saved in this room tonight, it was because you had to come out of the multitude of the blind and the lame and the paralyzed, and you had to acknowledge that you could not free yourself. You had to acknowledge your own sin and your own need for a savior. And you had to acknowledge that Jesus was that savior for yourself. You see, if you don't know you're a sinner, if you don't know you're struggling with sin, how do you need a savior? If you don't know you're sick, how do you know you need to seek a physician? And so this is the one man in the multitude. And in the story, you and I are the paralyzed man. Yes, even as Christians. Because even when we come to Christ, we still have to figure out who he is. We still have to figure out what it means to live in relationship with Jesus. And as we're going to see in a moment, that is a choice we make. It's like I said to you before, the second you make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, you have peace. You are immediately right with God. You have all the mercy you need, all the grace you need. But if you won't receive it, if you won't take it and apply it to your life and live like it's true, as a Christian, you will still find yourself in bondage. You will still find yourself struggling with the love of God. That's me. My whole Christian life, I've struggled to receive God's love. I have it. You have it. And he wants to help us to receive the fullness of who he is in our lives. And again, Jesus does such strange things in the New Testament. He's walked into the house of mercy where a multitude are waiting to be healed. He walks up to this individual and then he says to him, do you want to be healed? <laughs> There's only one answer for everybody in that place. <laughs> yes. However, we discover that maybe there's a different kind of answer. And so when Jesus asks this man, do you want to be healed? You know, it sounds so practical and normal and strange, right? But what is Jesus actually, actually doing? He needs this man to acknowledge something. He's giving this man to, an opportunity to acknowledge something. And what he wants him to acknowledge is that he needs to redefine himself. You see, Jesus, and this is by a word of knowledge, this is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is fully man and fully God. But when he's on earth, every single miraculous thing we see Jesus do is by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is clear that Jesus gave up his glory when he came. He stopped being God. 
And he lived like you and I have to live, which is that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Remember his baptism, the dove descending? He was full of the Holy Spirit. And so every miracle we see Jesus, that's how you and I can work miracles, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The difference is, is that Jesus was fully and completely submitted to the Holy Spirit. He is literally a picture of what it looks like when a human being is fully and completely submitted to the Holy Spirit. It can be any of us. And so by a word of knowledge, Jesus knows that he's been there 38 years. Now think about that. We don't know how old this man is. Some of you aren't even 38. <laughs> it's a long time. And as a counselor, as a pastor, what I know for sure, if this man has been visiting the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, there are lies he believes about himself. There are things and consistent patterns in his life that he now believes is who he is. And what Jesus is saying when he says to him, do you want to be healed? He's giving this man an opportunity to redefine himself. That he's no longer going to be defined by his ailment, by his sickness, by his weakness, by his lack. And as I said, everybody there wants healing. You would imagine the answer would be? This is what the man says to Jesus. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. He doesn't say yes. He makes excuses. He tells a story. Can you see how his 38 years has broken him down to a point where he can't even just say, he can't even just trust God that something's going to happen? He has to make an excuse. He has to put some barriers in. He has to blame somebody else. His pain, his challenging situation, his lack, his loneliness, his fear, his inability, his infirmity are what is defining him. His answer proves that. After 38 years of not having someone to lift him into the waters, he had no faith that God would do that for him, that God would do anything for him. And by the way, my hope for every single one of us in this room tonight is that you have somebody who would carry you to the water. I really hope and pray. And if you're sitting here tonight and you feel that there's nobody who would carry you to the water, he has some advice for you, because we are, we are also a picture of Jesus in the story. If you feel like there's no one who would carry you to the water, you need to become someone who would be willing to carry somebody else to the water. Because yeah. I, I guarantee you, you will always have somebody who will be willing to carry you to the water. Just as a free aside for you guys. So find those people who will be willing to pick you up and put you in the water. And at this point, I want to tell you, join a connect group. Do it. Yes, Jess. Join a connect group. And don't just join one, but attend one. Recently, I've come across so many people writing down their connect group leader's name. And then I phone the connect group, not to check up it, but other things. And by the way, I say, oh, I've been interacting with, and they're like, oh, yes, they came once last year. <laughs> That's where you're going to find people who carry you to the water and attend every week. That's why we run them weekly, because sometimes we need to get carried to the water many times. That's where people will pray for you. That's where you get to pray for other people. That's where ministry gifts will manifest that you don't even know you have. 
It's not a suggestion in this house. If you want to live the full life of Jesus Christ, you've got to be in a connect group. And I believe that Neo will be at the connect group sign-up table just by chance. That's what's happening on Sunday. So go and sign up, but then go and attend. And so Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? And his, his response proves that he has a serious lack of faith. There is unbelief in God and his promises. He doesn't just say yes. Now, the Bible calls sin unbelief. Romans 14, 23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews 11, verse 6 unpacks that a bit more. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Goodness, the slides have done weird things. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, what defines you will either bring you into bondage or into freedom. It's as simple as that. What is defining you? Because if it defines you, it's either bringing you into bondage or it's bringing you into freedom. If we define ourselves by brokenness, by inadequacy, by shame, by pride, by reputation, if we're defining ourselves by what other people think of us, if our brand is what's defining us, if our pride, our arrogance is what's defining us, every one of those things is going to bring bondage. Every one of those is false identity. And if we are doing that, then we are exactly like the blind, lame, and paralyzed people at the pool of Bethesda, just lying around, desperately waiting for a magical stirring of the waters to be set free, but it will never come. And tonight, Jesus is asking every single one of us the same question. Do you want to be healed? And when I was contemplating this and imagining Jesus asking me that question, I wanted to say yes immediately. But something held me back, and that's when I began to realize I have been defining myself by things that are beyond Jesus. And what I realized is if you, I cannot just say yes immediately. All that's happening is Jesus is giving me the same opportunity. So what are you defining yourself by? Success? If you can't answer yes immediately, it just means you need to go and figure out what is defining you, and then we've got to swap it into Jesus. And, and he has biblical language. It's, 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 it's rough. <laughs> but anything that defines you outside of God is an idol. It's as simple as that. We thought idolatry died. When I define myself by my success or my gifts or my talents or my stature or my... Um, TikTok or Instagram followers. I've just created an idol. Because what's happening is that thing's feeding my soul. That thing, that's the thing that's giving me confidence. And it works. It works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, I suddenly realize I'm in double trouble because now the thing I've been trusting to keep me up is gone and I can't find God. Not because he went anywhere, but because I went somewhere. I went somewhere dark, a lot darker than what happened here 
tonight. Pastor Rebecca was laughing so hard because he said, just as we were singing, those in darkness have come to light. The lights went out. I think it was just a prophetic picture that we are the light of the world. But anything I define myself by that isn't God is an idol. And I have to pull it down. I have to break it down. And so what is defining you tonight? What do you believe, feel, or think about yourself that is contrary to what God believes or thinks about you? What is that? You know, I think the biggest idol we make for ourselves is shame. I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. I'm never going to stop doing this. I'm never going to stop feeling like that, this condition that I have. And it becomes an idol because just like that man, we begin to make excuses, but they're not really excuses. What we begin to do is we begin to redefine God to justify why we can't and why we won't. And that's idolatry as well. And what are you going to do tonight to swap out of that into what God thinks about you? Because if you think God hates you, is angry with you, is shouting at you, if you think God is ashamed of you, then you don't know what the Word of God says about you. It's as simple as that. And listen, it's hard. It's hard to receive truth. For 38 years, he lived a lie. Yes, he was absolutely paralyzed, but that began to define him, and that's the lie. His paralysis was not who he was. And it's hard. It's hard to change your whole identity when you've lived with it for 38 years, or 25, or for some of you, 18. (laughs) It's hard. But God is who he is, and he will not be defined in any way. He, He is the only one who defines right and wrong. And when we try and redefine him, that's what we're doing. We're trying to lower the bar so we think we can meet it. But then we have to keep lowering it and lowering it, and eventually there's just no point. And that's unhappiness, that's tragedy, that's sadness. And so what is defining you tonight? Are you willing to look it in the face and and call it an idol? Now let me help you. God knows everything about you. There is nothing shocking about you. There is nothing even surprising about you. We get shocked and surprised. When I look at myself in the mirror and I see what's there, I'm like, oh my God, how did that get there? God's like, I have been watching that for the last 10 years. But that's good news, right? Because lightning has not come out the sky and struck you down. So when you go to him and tell him, what is he going to do? He's going to go, finally, yay, let's deal with it. Freedom is coming to you. Grace is coming to you. Newness is coming to you. Yes, my daughter. Yes, my son. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Why do we think he's going to shout and be upset? Do you know that God isn't moved by your sin at all. Your sin doesn't change him. God is completely unchanged by your sin. We think of God like, I'm sinning. Oh my gosh, I can't possibly. That's not who God is. He's the creator of the universe. He's the most powerful, mighty, robust thing in the whole universe. He sees your sin. It doesn't change him. But sin changes you. Sin changes me. God doesn't move away from us because of our sin. We move away from Him because of our sin. 
So let me say that again. Our sin doesn't change him. It changes us. And then we want to put a whole lot of nonsense on God that isn't his, that is not feeling. The house of mercy. Are you willing to receive mercy? See, I want to punish myself. I want to feel so bad because then I feel like I can earn salvation. Then I feel worthy. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is idolatry. And the best thing you can do to honor God is to just receive the mercy because that's who he is. So Jesus has compassion on us. Jesus wants us to be free and whole more than we want to be free and whole. He died on a cross for goodness sake, literally. (laughs) He wants our freedom and wholeness. He wants it. He paid everything he could. He came out of heaven and put aside his Godhead. Do you know that Jesus went to hell for you so that you don't ever have to? Hold that for a minute. That's how much he wants your freedom and your wholeness. He wants to pour love and mercy and compassion all over your heart. We already have it. 1 John 4 verse 9. We're going to just give up on these. (laughs) I don't know what happened. says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves you. Turn to your neighbor and with boldness and faith say, God loves you. Now let's do something really difficult and I want the same level of faith. God loves me. One more time. God loves me. And just because we're Christian, we do everything three times. God loves me. (laughs) Now believe it. Now the next time you sin or you feel bad, think on that because that's what's going to pull you out of the idolatry. He never changes. We change all the time. Who Jesus is determines our response to him. He doesn't care what we think we are, our sin, our shame, our fear, our doubt, our past, our present. None of these dictate to him who he is or what he can do. And as we read in the scripture, there's this implication that in this particular instance, it's not all the time, but this man's sin caused his problem. Now, there are other places where Jesus heals a blind man, and the religious leaders come to him, they think they're being so clever, and they say, who sinned? Was it his parents or him? And Jesus said, none of them. This was so God could be glorified. So we don't make up weird doctrines, right? Sin doesn't cause disease. If it did, we'd all be dead a long time ago. God isn't a punishing God. There are consequences that play out of our choices because God honors your free will more than you do. Right, think about that for a minute. But in this particular case, yes, for some reason, and we don't know what this man's sin is, and we're not going to make stuff up. We immediately think the worst thing's possible, but we don't know what happened. I think that the real sin behind it is whatever the sin was created bad choices and left him paralyzed. That's what I think happened because that's how human beings work. 
If we sin long enough, we start making bad choices. If we start making bad choices, we start making more bad choices. And then the consequences hit our lives. Am I in good company tonight? So put your hands up and let's see that company. <laughs> Look around. This is how it works. But God is merciful. The house of mercy. Um, and so, when, so Jesus knows this is the man. He knows the sinful man is the one he's going to. Before he even comes to Jerusalem, he's set his heart. This is the one I'm going to. He, he walks over all the other multitude of sick, sad, tragic people. And he walks up to the sinner. And he doesn't care because this is how Jesus is thinking. This is what I think Jesus is thinking. He's thinking when I rock up, it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. I'm going to heal you tonight because I am the son of God. And we've got to get that clear. You will never be holy enough. Quite frankly, you will never be worthy enough. This is the whole point of Jesus. There is no perfection. If we could be perfect in our own strength, what is the point of him dying? So get over yourself and run to the mercy of Jesus Christ. Jesus can set you free. <laughs> John 8:36. Let's see. Okay, there it is. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Can you see what the word of God saying? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Did Jesus come and set you free? Okay, let's try that again. Did Jesus come and set you free? Yes. Because if he didn't, you're not born again. So either he did or he didn't. But if he did, guess what? You are free indeed. You are free. I love it when we sing songs about freedom, but I also hate it. Because when we sing songs about freedom, in our hearts we're imagining, one day when I've read the Bible enough, one day when I've fasted, one day when I don't sin, I will be free. Nonsense! You are free now. Because do you understand what freedom actually is? It's not some mythical feeling. Freedom is knowing the difference between right and wrong. Done. Before Jesus Christ entered your life, you were only going to sin. You had no choice. You were either going to be self-righteous or depraved or a wonderful fruit salad in between. You were going to sin. The second Jesus Christ came into your life, you knew the difference. Now, what did I say? God honors your free will more than you do. This is the scariness of freedom. You get to choose. Now, you know that's wrong, the self-righteousness. You know that's wrong, the depravity. And now you're sitting there in your freedom going, hmm, what do I want to do? do would I like the fleeting pleasure of sin? <laughs> yes, we do, apparently. Or am I going to obey Jesus? That's freedom. Can we, can we understand that? That's what this says. If the Son sets you free, because you know right from wrong, you get to be free indeed if you want to, it's done, it's yours. This is how generous God is. We want to be controlled. We want to be policed. We want to know how far we can get to the line. We hate absolute freedom. It's terrifying. When I told you that all that freedom is is right and wrong, you were making up stories in your head, Pastor Greg speaking nonsense, what about this, what about that? You go look it up in the Bible. We want to be policed because we want to touch and then want to be safe. We want to be little babies 
They get pulled out of the traffic. If you want to play in the traffic, go for it. Jesus will even be in the ambulance when it, <laughs> when it comes for you. But don't blame him. That is your freedom. And so Jesus helps this man to understand that his particular condition was connected to sin in his life. As I said, not always the case. But this is the great compassion and mercy of our Lord and Savior for every one of us. No matter what caused the problem, even if it is our own fault, he shows up in our lives with his presence and he speaks his word to us and we are healed. And this is how Jesus healed this man, by his presence and by his word. Remember what I said, Jesus came to Jerusalem and then headed straight for the pool of Bethesda for this man. And when that man looked up, there was Jesus Christ standing right by him. That's presence, right? But the second thing Jesus did that healed him was to speak his word. Now, it's really interesting. Jesus doesn't say, be healed, he gives him a command. That's the word of God. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Three commands. That man has been sick for 38 years. That man hasn't walked for 38 years. That man didn't even have faith because we know. He said, sir, nobody's carrying me to the water. And even if I could, somebody else gets in there first. You see, when Jesus speaks to you, faith awakens in your heart. Let me rephrase it. When you actually listen to what Jesus is saying to you, faith awakens in your heart. When Jesus asked him a question, he had an answer, a bad one. <laughs> when Jesus commanded him, he just obeyed. When Jesus spoke to him, the presence of Jesus and the, and the word of Jesus created faith in him that he just stood up and did it. Think about that for a minute. What is Jesus saying to you? What is Jesus saying to you? You know, we're so worried about purpose and destiny and who I should marry. You know, Jesus just wants to talk to you about your own heart. Because if you get your own heart right, you will choose wisely who to marry. If God doesn't give you a wife. Let's just disabuse things tonight. You get married because you want to get married. If you're praying for a wife, stop it and start praying for yourself. That you will be the kind of person other people really want to marry. Stop writing lists and ask Jesus to fix you. Because I can tell you stories about green eyes and blue eyes and brown eyes that ended very badly. Lots of them. And you're all going to come and tell me your one story. I will tell you 50 for every one of your good stories that ended badly. We're being funny tonight, but it's true. We want to put a whole lot of responsibility on God that he's put, given to us. And so what is Jesus Christ saying to you tonight? When was the last time you just sat in his presence? You just let him be close to you without giving him excuses? I understand. You know, I learned early on that when I come into God's presence, he is light of light. He is the light. And whenever I got close to him, I would suddenly become so aware of all my darkness. And in my pain and my trauma and my abuse, I started thinking he was shouting at me because I wanted all of that to be hidden. He is who he is. He will never, ever be anything less for any of us. And what I started realizing is, no, he is perfect light. And he receives me just as I am. But if there's darkness in me, I need to go and deal with it. I must bring it to him. 
Do you get that? And so that's why we don't want to sit in God's presence. That's why we love worship and we dance and we shout, but we don't just sit in His presence. Because when we sit in His presence, we see ourselves. He's not shouting. He's, there's no judgment. The house of mercy. And so if you want to be healed, you need to be in His presence and you need to let faith awaken in your heart when He speaks to you. You see, sometimes when I read the Bible, I just feel judgment, but that's not His judgment. That's not his judgment. It's the stuff in me that I'm seeing. It's my idols. <laughs> and Jesus calls us to live in freedom. And this is so wonderful. Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just walk away. You know, it actually says he snuck out. <laughs> and do you notice the religious people's attitude? It's unlawful to pick up your mat. I mean, they know the guy has been paralyzed for 38 years. And the best they can possibly do is, it's the Sabbath. <laughs> but we're like that, right? We hear testimonies and we're like, hmm, that can't possibly be right. I want to see the doctor's report. Or we judge them. We think Jess's testimony was amazing and Bussy's testimony. And then we think Nao's was just small and uninteresting. We didn't, Nao. We didn't. But we do the same thing as religious people. Let's learn to stand in awe of God. It's going to do something inside of us. But Jesus doesn't just leave him there. As I said, Jesus wants us to have complete wholeness, not just physical healing. Being healed allowed this man to work again after 38 years of begging for a living. Suddenly he can experience financial freedom. Now, in the Old Testament, the Lord told Israel that to have poor people begging was going to be a shame to them. And he commanded that it mustn't happen. So if you go to Israel today, you will see no beggars on the street. Let me rephrase that. Sometimes you will see people begging on the street, and what it turns out is that they're drug addicts looking for the next fix. And what the most fascinating thing is when we were there, we actually watched the police come and take them away. Not to prison, but to one of the social spaces that has been created for them. There are no beggars on the streets. And so when we read this story, we forget these things. We're not realizing these things. Like for this man, he couldn't work. And I think part of the Bethesda thing is that people were begging. Everybody knew that's where the sick was. So if you wanted to impress God, you went there and gave some food and money, right? But that was a massive shame. To be a beggar in Israel was a massive, massive shame. And so it's not just about financial freedom. God is literally restoring his um, status. He's restoring um, his social and community standing. It wasn't just healing. He has financial healing. He has social and community status restored. As I've said, Jesus healed his mind. He's completely redefined in that moment. He's no longer somebody desperately waiting to be put in the water who's never going to get there. He's somebody who can self-determine. He's somebody who can make choices for his life now. He can decide. And then ultimately we see him find spiritual freedom because in verse 14, Jesus says to him, sin no more. The, the full scripture says, sin no more so something worse doesn't happen. Okay? But this man didn't even know it was Jesus who healed him. <laughs> He's lying there miserable in the house of mercy at the pool of Bethesda and suddenly there's this man saying to him, do you want to be healed? And suddenly this man says, pick up your mat, get up and walk. 
He does it, and he's healed, but he doesn't know who Jesus is. And then Jesus finds him. He says to him, see, you are well. What is Jesus saying? When I heal you, it's permanent. It's not that nonsense transaction at the pool of Bethesda. Quinton said something so beautiful. He said, when you've been healed, you don't go back to the pool of Bethesda. When you've been healed, and this is what it means to live in freedom, we don't go back to our idols after we've seen truth. And Jesus says, see, you are well. You're going to stay well. Sin no more. And when Jesus says that to him, he's moving this man into deeper truth. He's saying you don't have to live like you lived before. Whatever caused your condition, you never ever need to go back there. Live in your freedom. And sin no more doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. It means that we rely on the Holy Spirit. Do you know what it really means? It means that the second we know we've sinned, freedom, the second we figure out right from wrong, we don't try and do all kinds of weird things to make right with God. We just run to His mercy. We just run to His mercy. He knows already. He's just waiting for you. Just run and say, God, I got it wrong. I messed it up. I sinned. I disagreed with you. And now I'm going to agree with you. I'm sorry. Help me. Help me to do better. That's what sin no more looks like. And I don't make excuses and I don't come up with weird doctrine to justify stuff. I just run back to his presence. I just remember the word he's spoken. I let faith rise in me. And so Jesus is after your whole being set free. Jesus doesn't want one single iota of you to be in any bondage or in any delusion, to be in any shame. He wants all of you to be set free and healed. And so I really believe that tonight, again, Jesus is asking every single one of us, do you want to be healed? And if there's an excuse in your heart, look at that excuse. It's an idol. All you do with an idol is you say, no more, thank you. <laughs> and you say, Jesus, I want you. I want you. For a moment, just sit there. Just think about that question. Do you want to be healed? I want you to think about God's mercy for you. Do you feel loved by God? Think about that for a minute and talk to him. If you don't feel loved by God, just tell him. And then open your heart because he's going to come and love you tonight. He's going to come and love you. That's who he is. That's what he does. It doesn't matter whether you want it or not. He loves you. So best thing you can possibly just say, it's okay, God, love me. That's what I had to learn to do. God, that's who you are. That's what you do. I'm just going to let you love me. Lord Jesus, tonight, we're just going to tell you, we're just going to let you love us. God, we don't understand. We know we're not worthy. God, we want to try and earn your love in a million ways. But what we know for sure tonight is you love us. And we're going to just let you love me. Just say that aloud to him. I'm going to just let you love me. I'm going to just let you love me, Jesus. I'm going to just let you love me, Jesus.